Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In his review of Malcolm Harris's new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World, the author Jonathan Lethem wrote that he first met Harris in 2011 in Manhattan's Zuccotti Park during Occupy Wall Street. He tracks Harris's trajectory after Occupy, during which time Harris became a journalist writing for outlets such as The New Inquiry, Jacobin, The Nation, and The New Republic. Lethem says Harris became a sort of generational spokesperson with his 2017 book, Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials, which was then followed in 2020 with a collection of essays that Lethem says positioned Harris as, quote, a theorist of a robust, non-sectarian 21st century Marxism. His book on Palo Alto looks at the project of Silicon Valley through that lens. My name's Malcolm Harris. I'm the unaffiliated writer who is the author of Palo Alto, A History of California Capitalism in the World, as well as a couple other books available wherever fine books are sold. Malcolm, thank you so much for speaking to me. You start this book in a very personal place. Uh, you talk a little bit about your childhood, about the experience that you had living there in Palo Alto, and about the tragedy that befell some of your classmates and other young people in your community. Uh, why did you start there? Well, Palo Alto is a, a personal place for me. I my parents met there, and then I grew up there uh, from age 8 to 18. The reason I decided to write this book is because it's the one I didn't want to write. I was talking with a friend of mine, thinking about what book I was going to pitch for my third project, and I said, the, the one thing I really don't want to write about is Palo Alto and the suicides. Because when I grew up in Palo Alto, we had an exceptionally high youth suicide rate that has continued into the present. And that was sort of a defining phenomenon of my childhood. And for writers in my cohort, you know, that's what you, especially for by your third book, right? If you haven't sold the defining uh, trauma of your childhood yet, then you, you better get on it. Uh, especially if you want to write a history book and you don't have a history PhD, which I did and don't. And so that was the way I pitched the book originally was as this sort of memoiristic uh, history focused on these suicides, on my classmates and the dozens of young people in Palo Alto who died by suicide. But as I started writing the book, it was clear that I wasn't really interested in doing that project very much, that my personal stories just didn't line up against this history in the way that I wanted to, that the juxtaposition wasn't, wasn't working narratively, and the writing wasn't as good. I just wasn't as good at it. Way more history, straight history, it turned out that I wanted to tell. And so I use that launching point still in the introduction, and I come back to it in the conclusion, but through the 600 plus pages that make up the book, uh, I'm not a character in there, and it's, it's not about my history. So you use it as a way to kind of get into, I guess, the fabric of the place, the vibe of the place to some extent, a sort of, you know, emotional, cognitive load of being from Palo Alto. Um, and then you pick apart the history and find detail. Yeah. And I wanted to do that, not just because that's what you do in an intro, but because I think everyone starts from where they are. And I think that is a 
the introduction to the book, the proper introduction to the book, is starting to from the writer's position at this intersection of history and biography. And what I try to do is look down that historical line of, you know, what historical processes am I the product of? And you can do that, I found, I think, mostly not through exploring yourselves and your own psychology or biography, but the historical processes that determine the production of someone like you. We'll move on from the intro in just a second, but I do want to kind of just ask you to recount this one experience that you had that seems to have been formative, which is the visit of a substitute teacher uh, who sort of pierced the bubble. Yeah, this is a story from fourth grade, and this is actually just a couple of years after I'd moved to Palo Alto, so I hadn't even been there long. Moving to Palo Alto from the East Coast was a move toward what I understood as normalcy at the time. It was all these single-family suburban homes in a way that I hadn't seen before and hadn't lived in before, and it was all beautiful and sunny, and so California seemed like I was moving to the place from the television shows. Two years later, I had this substitute teacher come into to class in fourth grade, and instead of doing what she was supposed to do and the schedule that was assigned, she gathered up all these 10-year-olds and started telling us, trying to tell us about Palo Alto and how Palo Alto was a bubble and how the rest of the world wasn't like this place. And that really stuck with me, especially when my teacher came back and said that, don't worry, we got rid of that scary substitute. She won't be coming back. Uh, and that sequence stuck in my brain in a way that I guess few days from fourth grade do 20 plus years later. And so I use that anecdote in the beginning of this book as part of this haunting disjuncture between how a place seems and what's really going on. This book is bookended, perhaps, with discussion of uh, the indigenous peoples who called the area of California that we call Palo Alto home. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, where did things start uh, prior to settlement? So I start the book in the mid-19th century. So Alta, California has been settled by the Spanish at that point. You have the mission system, um, but it's mostly a coastal phenomenon. And it's in the way that we would think about it or categorize it, it would be a feudal system. This wasn't a capitalist system. It wasn't able to absorb the labor of the native population in the way that we'll see other systems be able to do in the future. But where I start my story is the colonization of Alta California by the Anglo-Americans in the second half of the 19th century through the 20th century into the 21st century as this continual period of settlement and occupation. And so you have a, a, a population at that point still of tens of thousands of native people in California. They're the, the largest population in, in the area. As part of this settlement of the area, which is takes place during the, the 1850s, early 1860s. You also have some of the worst colonial massacres of American history going on during this period in California. And you have settlers joining militias, what they called militias, but were really murder squads going out and clearing Indians from land and being rewarded for that service with land and with money provided by the state government that is then backed by the federal government. And so you have the synthesis of grassroots murder militias, you know, a bunch of guys getting out and lynching their way to prosperity with the, you know, U.S. federal government. And it's that synthesis, the Anglo-American colonization of Alta California comes out of. There are a bunch of different themes that 
come in and come out and come back throughout this book. One of them is the sort of prosecution of whiteness in California, whiteness as a kind of ordering concept. Um, and it starts there, I suppose, with uh, exactly the types of events that you just described. But you know, you you kind of come back to that in in many different ways and and hit it at different points along the, the history. Yeah, as, as well does uh, America, right? So California is really a lab for whiteness during this period, and we think of whiteness as some phenomenon of antiquity, you know, right? Or like the 17th century, maybe, but it's totally being formed here in the 19th and 20th century, where you have people from all over the world coming to California. And at the same time, the authorities and scientific authorities and governmental authorities, et cetera, developing codes of whiteness and segregated labor markets, not based just on this new term of whiteness and then that's being developed in this way but based on immigration status based on language facility based on gender based on where what particular country you're coming from and all of this is being experimented with and figured out you know from the early 20th century where you've got italian and portuguese outside of the bonds of whiteness uh, boundaries of whiteness to the early agricultural cartels of the 20th century that brings Southern Europeans into whiteness along with Russians, Armenians, Syrians, and excludes Japanese, Chinese, East Indian. And there's a a legal history as well as an economic history here where you've got Supreme Court cases determining, you know, is a person from Western, Northwestern East India an Aryan person, does that make them a white person? Supreme Court says no. You know, is a is a Japanese person white because eugenicists had certain ideas about the whiteness of Japanese within East Asia? Supreme Court says no. Is a Syrian person white because they don't fit into any of the neat racial categorizations thus far and economically they're playing the same role as other white people? You know, yes. So the, these are decisions that are being made in California during this period. Along the way as well, I guess one of the other kind of recurring characters or recurring themes is the role of Stanford, which you do set out in its kind of earliest form as being very interested in, uh, well, eugenics, in the creation of, you know, the best in class uh, versions of the species, being very interested in in that science, bionomics, obsession with race and IQ, trying to pump out the best. Can you talk a little bit about the the Stanford family and the genesis of the university and what that political project was about. Yeah. So Palo Alto starts as the outlet for the ruling class. It finds itself in the midst of self-induced class tensions of the 1870s. So Leland Stanford is the oligarch of the West. His job is to stand in front of railroad capital and play the role of railroad baron. He really didn't do much other than that. He was kind of a front man, but he did that role pretty good. And as a result, he's credited sort of personally at the time with bringing in Chinese workers to complete the railroad, which upsets the racial and labor dynamics of the West at that point. And so the Working Man's Party, which is an anti-Chinese pro-white labor affiliate of the international at that point in the 1870s, is demonstrating outside Leland Stanford's house in San Francisco all the time. And everyone knows where his house is, the top of the hill, Knob Hill, 
which some of your readers might know in San Francisco, short for Nabob Hill. And Stanford does what a lot of rich guys do when they face these class tensions that they have themselves induced, uh, which is moves his family to the suburbs. But the suburb doesn't exist yet, so he has to create Palo Alto as a suburb to escape to. And in that suburb, he builds the largest horse stock farm in the country because he is, has this interest in horses that he's developed in Sacramento earlier. And at this stock farm, he decides he's going to, with his head trainer, Charles Marvin, reinvent the trotting horse, the carriage horse. And the horse is playing this really crucial role as a piece of technology in America at this point. It hasn't been supplanted by the engine, which means in agriculture, transportation, military, any field where you've got technology working, it's driven by horses. You know, horses are, are driving the country. And Leland Stanford says, I'm going to increase the quality, the value of these horses across the country. And there are 13 million horses. And if I can raise their value by 100 bucks each, that's $1.3 billion. By inflation, that's like 30 plus billion. So it's very like tech bro logic about like, I'm going to scale these new horses that I'm going to make. And I'm going to transform American industry. The system they come up with, the Pal what they which they call the Palo Alto system, involves shortening the reproduction cycle of these champion horses by racing them as fast as they can, as young as they can, in defiance of folk wisdom in the horse trade, which held that you got to sort of train horses up to their speed. And instead, they draw inspiration from the new young children's education movement in Germany, which is establishing these new institutions called kindergartens. And they decide they're going to create the first kindergarten west of the Rockies, but it's going to be for horses. And they build a kindergarten track to train these young horses to go faster than young horses have ever been trained to go. And they succeed in doing this, and they create the, some of the fastest young horses in the world, though horses are quickly supplanted by engines as the engines of America, the intangibles of that production process, that Palo Alto system weed themselves into the DNA of Stanford uh, as it becomes a university. And Stanford's first president is this guy, David Starr Jordan, who's brought in from Indiana University. None of the Ivy League presidents would take this job for this, you know, California rich guy who wants to start his new school. They're not going to like abandon their job at Harvard or Columbia to go work at like, you know, Elon Musk's new university or whatever, which is basically what this was. So they get this guy from Indiana University, who is David Starr Jordan, who's a leading eugenicist in the world. And so his interest doesn't just gel with the horses and the hippology project that's going on at the Stanford Stock Farm, though he is himself an ichthyologist by training, studies fishes. But he takes it further with this eugenic agenda that Stanford didn't himself didn't quite really like have to that degree. And he didn't have the scientific chops to develop. He was just interested in these horses. But the, that interest in the horses and the development of improved genes and like the state functions of eugenics exceed their, their origins in this founding through David Starr Jordan and Stanford as an institution. Early Stanford becomes really devoted to not just the scholarship of eugenics, but the practice of eugenics. You have a funny line here where you say the Stanfords were sophisticated modern thinkers of the late 19th century, which means they thought they could talk to ghosts. Uh, who, who were these people? What was this family about? Yeah, so Leland Stanford Sr. was this uh, 
if we think of Railroad Baron, he was that guy, you know, big suit and the puffy beard and does whatever he wants with the watch chain. He becomes governor of California for a term. He becomes a senator, an early senator, uh, national for California term uh, as a result of his role as the head of the railroad through which he becomes the head of the Republican party in the West. And as a result of the civil war, he becomes a like nationally important political economic figure at the same time. He's like kind of a goofball, right? Like, so no one really respects him or his abilities. He doesn't play any sort of important role in politics. He just has his like pet concerns which later come to include horses and so he's a great prototype for the, the Stanford man because he is this like really important economic political figure. And at the same time, he's like more or less a stuffed shirt and he just plays an intellectual uh, in the newspapers. His wife is Jane Stanford, who comes from the same upper middle class striving milieu in New York that he comes from. And she's the one who's normally credit with, credited with the spiritualism and the talk to ghosts and the ghosts that they are trying to contact is their only son, Leland Stanford Jr. When they raise him as a small child to become part of the the next generation of the American ruling class into the 20th century, he has this totally off the walls uh, early childhood where they're taking him with them as they explore all the greatest things that the world has to offer. And so he writes these like childhood letters about like, oh yeah, we had coffee with the Sultan of the Ottoman empire. And like, we checked out his jewel room and it was really cool. And then we went to the Rothschilds like vineyard and checked out the wine. And like, he goes on this just like crazy tour of Europe. He gets personally blessed by the Pope and his parents are training him to be a future ruler of America. And he's divine. He's like designing train couplings in his notebooks. He wants to be an engineer. You can really see the future of what becomes Stanford in this kid. Uh, and then when he's a young teenager, he suddenly dies and, and this destroys his parents. They travel around the world looking for sort of the story goes ways to contact him, some way to deal with his memory. And they come back and decide that they're going to build a university and that this university will educate what they call the children of California. What they mean is the settlers of California. They'll spread the privileges that they were going to bestow on their single son into onto the settler class of the West. And that's where Stanford University becomes. And they've got a different agenda for what that is going to be. Leland has a different particular agenda. And then Jane has a particular agenda. But it's really David Starr Jordan's agenda that wins out. And he may or may not have murdered Jane Lathrop Stanford to get that agenda uh, instantiated. That's sort of like the, the true crime element of the story and element of the book. So if readers are into that, they should definitely check it out because it does have some true crime stuff in there. By the early part of the 20th century, we enter what you call the age of synergy. Um, so there are a lot of inventions already coming out of this university and in Palo Alto in particular. You know, by the 1930s, we've got uh, folks like William Hewlett, David Packard, apparently meeting on the football field there uh, at Stanford. Um, the, I guess the beginnings of the Stanford thing are already happening. Yeah. To be clear, I'll, let me give uh, credit to Vaclav Smil, who is... The one who says Age of Synergy, I just took it for him. I, I would hate to think readers, uh, listeners think I'm asserting ownership over that one, though it's a good phrase. Um, but yeah, then you really move into the radio age with the invention of the vacuum tube triode, which is invented not at Stanford, but around at Federal Telegraph. 
which is affiliated with draws on the talent pool at Stanford and is in some ways the first real Stanford startup uh, is Federal Telegraph. And there, this guy, Lee DeFrist, ends up inventing this thing called the vacuum triode, which becomes the basis for the radio age, as well as precursor to the transistor, which becomes the defining object of Silicon Valley, obviously. But so the origins of these things are earlier in the radio age and in the production of these vacuum tube triodes, which, again, are essentially the same thing at a technical level as the transistors that would be invented to replace them, just like way more limited and fragile. And you kind of start, I guess, tracking out the sort of technical sophistication, the growing technical sophistication of the area. A federal telegraph seems like it's sort of the proto version of uh, a Silicon Valley uh, firm, you know, or a technology that it has a, there's something in that that sort of signals what's to come. This uh, relation to Stanford, where the Stanford faculty is collaborating with Federal Telegraph, where the Stanford leadership is backing and sometimes personally investing um, in Federal Telegraph and finding ways to find synergies between the company and the institution, especially because it's in this high technology area that the university found so important. Part of the strategy for early Stanford was to invest themselves in high technology areas where they could produce graduates and distinguish the university by producing a a disproportionate number of graduates in these high tech fields that would go on to be prominent and increase the prominence of the university. And so this was part of that project and it was a very successful project. And we see it beginning in the interwar era um, or even the pre-war era with the intelligence testing and such. That is another, of course, theme that comes back again and again is uh, the role of, of war, the military, the investment of uh, the federal government in communications technology, uh, radar, radio engineering, et cetera. You speak to that a little bit about how that's sort of just laced into what's happening there. Yeah. Because when we talk about the radio age, radar is in some ways the killer app of the radio age and of the vacuum triode, because that made bombing and uh, air conflict feasible. And it made, at the same time, the U.S. mainland defensible during World War II uh, for fear of strategic bombing from the Germans. The radar technology, which is exemplified, I would say, in the Klystron that is developed, again, through this partnership between the university and high-tech graduates and high-tech firms that their graduates work at, is invented at Stanford. And this is the the tool that is really the key to what they called avionics, which is electronics put in airplanes. And electronics put in airplanes is the thing that really makes airplanes more than just an entertainment device. Before the Klystron and before the age of avionics, before planes had ways to, you know, radio to the ground to get uh, transportation instructions, to get uh, maps, et cetera, um, to get real-time information, they were good basically for showing off to the public. But once you put electronics inside these planes, electronics that was developed around and through Stanford, um, they become weapons, 
they become transportation, you know, the same way that the, the horse was key to the, the 19th century, the airplane becomes key to the 20th century. And so much of that is due to the avionics research and development that happens around Stanford, for sure. And I suppose that leads us to the semiconductor. Yeah, because the, the semiconductor then is fulfills the need of increasingly complicated avionics. The problem with avionics in the vacuum tube era is that vacuum tubes are very fragile and flying around tends to break things that are fragile, especially early airplanes. And so putting fragile stuff in early airplanes is not a, a recipe for success. And then later, if you're thinking about missiles and space flight, you really can't do that with vacuum tubes. You need something that's stable. And that's where semiconductors come in and transistors made with semiconductors, which basically have the stability of dirt, but do the same thing, fulfill the same role as these vacuum transistors. And so the first generation of silicon transistors that are produced in Silicon Valley uh, at Fairchild Semiconductor all go into Minuteman 1 nuclear missiles because that's what they were for, right? Now avionics needs to go into outer space so that we can go into the missile age. And that required silicon chips. That required an upgrade in the kind of transistors from the vacuum triode to these uh, semiconductors. So we've got all of these different themes that are kind of recurring. We've got whiteness, we've got war, we've got uh, conquest. Um, and then we kind of enter a different phase, sort of middle of the 20th century. There's a kind of strange confluence of questions around culture, psychedelics, drugs, uh, this kind of, you know, uh, hippie libertarian uh, mindset. Uh, and then, of course, the civil rights movement and the way that it, inter it intersects with, with Stanford and Palo Alto and in California more generally. Yeah, there's the, the hippie story I try to avoid. And people might be surprised to see if they've someone if they're someone who reads Silicon Valley history or is interested in Silicon Valley history, they might be kind of surprised that my version of that history is different than the conventional one. But you have the the conventional narrative around Silicon Valley and the internet is either the hippies invented the internet and the computer, personal computer, and that's good, or the hippies invented the personal computer and the internet and that's bad. And so the first version is sort of the John Markoff peace sign, the Grateful Dead is, leads to the internet version. And then the negative version is the Californian ideology, you know, the hippies created neoliberalism version. And I don't tell either version of that story, even to sort of contrast them, because I just think they're not very true. I just don't think it's like very good historiography. And so I leave that stuff out. And the story I tell is about the Cold War. And that's a real continuation of the earlier story, which had to do with how do you maintain inequalities in a world that is universally connected? And that's the project of Palo Alto, not to connect everyone. The connection of everyone around the world is the premise of Alta California after it's colonized by Anglo-Americans, because it links this capitalist system across the Pacific for the first time. And you have a world system of production and distribution and circulation for the first time. That's the premise for capitalist California. The question for Palo Alto is how, once everyone is connected, do you maintain your role in an unequal world? How do you maintain your perch, your unequal position at a time when liberalism has circled the world and you've got anti-colonial movements and you've got world communist movement 
and you've got this struggle for global equality, how do you maintain the position of America? How do you p- maintain the position of white people in that world? And that's a much more interesting story to me than the story of, you know, hippies invented the internet because they thought the whole world was connected, man, or they saw a picture from NASA, you know, uh, that doesn't really have anything to do in my mind with what was really going on in the world and what, what was most important, which was this nuclear missile, right? Which was the struggle over a world system. And yet there is a bit of mention of LSD, uh, cocaine, uh, you know, in general, some of these, uh, these pieces do sort of thread themselves through. Absolutely, because they play really important roles. And so LSD, I, I absolutely go into LSD because it's very important. Well, it's somewhat important. I think it's a, it's a useful set of stories because you've got both ends. On one end, you've got people thinking from the beginning, from the very beginning of LSD, how do we use this to give it to knowledge workers in California so that they can be more productive? You know, what doses should we give programmers of LSD so that they can program better? And that's this idea of microdosing is sort of thought of as a contemporary idea that someone came up with, you know, in the 21st century. But the same guy, Willis Harmon, who invents it, invents it at the very beginning. This is from Palo Alto, and it's the idea of we're going to give it to workers to augment their work is there from the very beginning. At the same time, in the same place, you have studies going on at the Veterans Hospital on Stanford campus about what happens if we give people LSD, can we interrogate them better? You know, is it a good tool of torture, basically? And so you see LSD being used on both sides of this Cold War, which is, you know, if you're a knowledge producing coder, and they're trying to upgrade your skills, what they're most interested in the ability to produce is weapons, right? They're interested in your role as a coder, as a tool of American empire. And on the other end, they're looking at how it can be used as a weapon directly against enemy personnel. So again, LSD, even when you look directly at LSD, all I can see is this Cold War, is this global struggle. Um, And it's a hot war, right? We've got these experiments going on also at U.S. military bases around the world. And we don't know nearly as much about those experiments as we do about the ones that were conducted on U.S. uh, soil at U.S. educational institutions under this name MKUltra. But we have reason to believe they were worse, right? They're, these are happening on U.S. military bases under very little uh, supervision. So, again, this is all part of the same narrative. So still this focus on productivity, extracting the, the most out of the best, um, and of producing a sort of, I suppose, hypercharged result, increasing, increasing productivity at all costs. And we can see that connection to the eugenic plan at the beginning of Stanford, at the roots of Stanford, which David Starr Jordan's real concern about war, David Starr Jordan, who's the first president of Stanford University, recall, and this big eugenicist, is really worried about war in the age of gunpowder, that you know, you're going to be sending the bravest boys out to the front and they're just going to get killed first in the trenches. You know, The bravest guys are going to stand up first and get mowed down by a machine gun. He has this great phrase where he says, in this age of gunpowder, the clown can shoot down the hero. And so he's a, as a eugenicist, he's an anti-war guy because he's really worried that in these wars, the best Anglo-American men are going to get taken out. 
but with the realization that the Germans were going to, that they were drawing different conclusions from the same eugenic ideas, specifically that they were going to conquer the world uh, militarily, they had to come up with some way to fight wars without, and fight and win wars without risking your genes, without risking death. And the way they came up with it was science and technology, right? And fighting wars from afar. And that starts with avionics. That starts with planes. Well, it starts with IQ tests. It starts with figuring out who's smart and removing them from the front lines. Then it goes to avionics. You know, we got to give those guys the tools to fly planes or build planes that can drop bombs from far away. And then it moves to missiles and to the transistors and to this nuclear missile that says, look, we don't even have to fight these wars. We're going to cock a gun and put it to the world's head and say, if anything happens to us, everyone dies. And the tool of the engineer, the Stanford engineer, uh, is involved deeply in all of these strategies, all of these tactics over time. But it's the same question of how do you preserve your role, uh, your unequal position in an equalizing world? So you take us right up to, I suppose, the more recent times. Uh, there are all these characters that come on the stage from Steve Jobs to Bill Gates to Mark Zuckerberg uh, and beyond. And I suppose, you know, the listener can go and, and pick up the book and, you know, go through uh, the more recent history, which may be more familiar to them than, you know, the earlier history that you've discussed uh, so far. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about where we've got to and the role that you think now, having looked back at Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, Stanford, uh, its role in technology and developing this sort of modern political economy, what it says to you about its role in defining the future. I have this kind of thesis that these days, there really aren't that many kind of mega narratives about where the future is headed. And there's you know, arguably maybe China has a mega narrative uh, about where the future is headed, which is, of course, very much based on technological ideas and ideas about the way that we can build a, a better society. And then there's sort of the, the Silicon Valley version of it, which to some extent has been accepted and perpetuated by a large part of the Western world. Do you think that's right? Is Silicon Valley sort of in charge of the future de facto? I don't think we can even, it's hard to even split the the Chinese system and the American system. In some ways, I think you can. I think there, it's worth understanding the distinct political economic system that China has developed, that the People's Republic has developed. At the same time, we're looking at still 150 years later, 150 plus years later, an integrated world system, right? That's a That was some of the graffiti during the uprisings in Hong Kong was China and the U.S., uh, two countries, one system, which is a joke, of course, about Hong Kong and China. But I think it's a good one, and I think it's it's revealing. And you can't talk about California, Alta California in this period without talking about China from the very beginning, like not, not like more recently, not the 21st century, like 19th century. Uh, those systems are totally intertwined. That's like the whole history. And part of my goal was to tell California's history in a global context where China's development and the history of China is at least as important to the history of California as the history of New York is. So with that said, I still, I do think there are different narratives about the future. And I say Silicon Valley and part of Palo Alto's job 
in the 20th century and now in the 21st century is offering a vision of the future where inequality persists, where this commitment to natural hierarchy keeps finding new way to reassert itself. And that is lined up with the cap the perpetuation of the capitalist mode of production, which only can encounter limits as things to step over or find ways around, right? Which can never uh, address limits as an actual limit. And we see that now as like limits of the biosphere are, you know, existential limits of the biosphere are being treated like obstacles to get around that like, oh, that just means we need to colonize Mars. And that's the kind of thinking and futurism that we get out of Silicon Valley. But we can go back to the very beginning to, of this project to the mid 19th century and see that logic playing out with hydraulic mining in Alta California, where they experience the destruction of the land under them. You know, Leland Stanford, the first place where Leland Stanford gets his start as a politician is this small mining town. And soon after he leaves, the town itself slides down the mountain because the hydraulic miners have so destroyed the foundation, the earthen foundation of the town, the town itself is destroyed. And so that's what this system does to its own foundations constantly. And when it hits these limits, the only way it can solve that problem is by displacing those contradictions somewhere else. And so if hydraulic mining stops here, hydraulic mining commences somewhere else. Or if hydraulic mining stops, then you find a new way of mining. And if mining can't find anything more to mine here, then we got to mine asteroids, right? And it, because it's an exhausting system. And so... We have to find a narrative about a system that is not exhausting. That's the, our only way forward, right? Unless you have an idea of humanity that can successfully surpass the exhaustion of this planet, which I've seen no evidence for, then you have to, we have to be looking for a, a metabolism, a universal social metabolism that is not just non-exhausting at this point, but is restorative because our systems, the systems that underlie reason, that underlie every uh, calculation that's ever been made are facing real peril, real existential peril. I am literally interviewing you today on the day that the uh, IPCC has come out with a report that yep. essentially says that we've got about <laughs> a decade, according to their estimation to get things in order before profound consequences of climate change begin to set in. But I just want to, before we maybe come back to how we might think about a, a really profound shift in the metabolism of the political economy, I want to just kind of ask you about, you know, some of the ideas of a, another name from Silicon Valley that perhaps doesn't appear in the book, Sam Altman. Um, mm. You know, he's promising uh, abundance, right? Um, artificial general intelligence will come along. This is the ultimate project of Silicon Valley, uh, machines of loving grace that will uh, eventually make much of human labor unnecessary, create a kind of economic abundance, uh, perhaps a physical abundance that we've never experienced before, and maybe even solve the climate problem uh, along the way if it's smart enough to figure out fusion faster than human scientists can do. You know, I mean, is is that kind of the logical step that that would come from this tale that you've told? Yeah. I mean, Sam Altman's a, a perfect example of the kind of figure that we've talked about, the Leland Stanford type figure. 
who stands for social forces that are much bigger than him and seems to embody them, but is really a reflection of them more than some guiding force. So like Sam Altman dropped out of Stanford as a sophomore to start a social media company that got crushed by Foursquare and has sort of been failing up ever since, right? He made his real reputation as an investor on Stripe which is also, you know, recently revealed that it hasn't made any money and now needs to a bunch of infusion from investors. So this guy's got no sort of track record in terms of actual innovation of producing anything. And he comes back with this large language model software that the fundamentals of are very old and basically convinces the market and the public that he can spin gold out of straw and now has to like keep a smile on his face while everyone talks about how it's the future of the economy. It sounds exactly like crypto to me. I don't think there's any more there there than that, more or less. It's an entertainment product. And when I see a company like Coca-Cola being like, we're going to team up with OpenAI to do something, it sounds exactly like what we heard during the whole crypto boom in terms of Companies going to go on the blockchain and use this technology for something, and it's not clear. It is not clear at all to me what this large language model software has to do with production, right? Even the jobs that they're saying that it will replace, it's not clear to me what any of those jobs have to do with production. So if you're automating bullshit jobs, if your technology is to automate bullshit jobs, what on earth are you doing? Like, (laughs) what does this have to do with anything? And so I see it as a primarily the kind of finance story spinning that Silicon Valley really uh, specializes in, which isn't to say that's all Silicon Valley specializes in. I think there's a danger in confusing the like speculative products of the Valley with their like scammiest instantiations, because I do think there's a real historical project going on here. It's just not the one that they say it is. It's this historical project of the American empire. But I don't. Bl- I think artificial general intelligence is a, a children's story. I think the people who believe in this stuff are, are fooling themselves. You, in the book, addressing some ideas, again, from indigenous peoples. Um, and I, I suppose this relates back to your uh, search for that different intellectual and or social political metabolism uh, that might put us back on a sustainable path. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you arrived at that? Uh, Is that something that occurred in the writing of this book uh, or something that's come more generally from your exploration of these ideas? Well, I think it's important to remember that this book was written in the shadow of land and water, indigenous land and water struggles around the country. So this book is written in the shadow of Standing Rock. Uh, This book is written in the shadow of a number of... uh, pipeline and territorial struggles throughout the continent. And so politically, I think that represents the the cutting edge of where we are right now. And those are the people who are taking responsibility for the future in the way I don't see other political formations with any plan to do. And people putting themselves on the line, not exclusively, when I look for developed political formations in this territory in North America right now, that's what I see. And so that that's the conclusion of this story isn't coincidental, I don't think. Uh, if I was a critic who was analyzing this text, I think I would draw attention to that, uh, that the, this book is produced in the shadow of these struggles. 
at the same time, we're talking about a colonial history that is coextensive with his book, right? And so you still have territory in Alta California that's controlled by indigenous people at the beginning of the story. And that's a sh- it's a relatively short historical story. And so I want to separate out the California story a little bit and trouble the sort of universal story we have about colonization in this country that puts it way, way in the ancient past uh, at the beginning of people steading foot on this continent or whatever, instead of the 19th century, like very recent. And so I talk about waves of migration to California in the 1960s still as settlement because that's really what it is and thinking about it as a settler history. And the, there's ongoing struggles right now in California by indigenous people in California for recognition, for territory, for a number of different political goals. I can speak most thoroughly, I think, to the Muwekmo Ohlone people who are the ancestral title holders of much of the Bay Area, including the land that is Palo Alto. They're a politically organized group of people. It's not like a, I'm not referring to indigenous people as a race or in some general historical way. I'm talking about a, a tri, a politically organized tribe of 614 enrolled members who have an ancestral tie to the area that has been confirmed with genetic testing. So all 614 of them have genetic ties to a, a remains that were recovered from 2000 years ago in the area. And this is a tribe that's now currently, I was with them two weeks ago on Capitol Hill, lobbying for the restoration of their federal recognition, which was mistakenly removed. And that's a forward-looking political project, right? They're looking for to restore that recognition. The tribe has is resurgent in its numbers. And I think ultimately we'll be looking to build a territorial base in the Bay Area to make sure that their tribal group, which has endured hundreds of years of some of the worst genocide on the continent isn't ultimately pushed out of their ancestral line lands by like rent prices right by gentrification which is what they're looking at and so that this is a current struggle these are future struggles future directed struggles not just past opportunities for reparations or apology future ways in terms of dealing with how do we sustain this territory? How do we sustain this land? How do we sustain this world? And which is ultimately what I'm concerned with in the face of a system that seems determined to destroy it very soon. You mentioned that to some extent you had started writing this with a thought to maybe a kind of personal evaluation or understanding your own you know, story or the genesis of your own person uh, in Palo Alto or in that context. It sounds like you have arrived at a place. You are now an actor in this struggle. What do you think is next for you? What will be the next project that you'll invest in to take this forward? I'm proud to be involved in the, the recognition struggle for the Moak Maloney. Absolutely. I'm going to be continued to be involved in that struggle until recognition is achieved with Chairwoman Charlene Nijme, who's, who's leading that struggle now. So that's ongoing. I'm, I am proud to be part of that. And that definitely comes as an outcome of this project. So I like to think you're, you're right there. At the same time, there's, there's always more to do, uh, more to learn in terms of my like intellectual work. I think there's a lot of paths that emerge out of this book that I'll, I'll be walking further down. So I hope people pick it up and, 
and think about what comes next and maybe tell me what I should be looking at because it's a it's a dialectical process too, right? It only ever exists in conversation with readers. So I'm going to need some help in whatever comes next. Malcolm, do you hold out hope that people will perhaps come to the same conclusion that, that you have in, in substantial enough numbers that the path forward that Silicon Valley seems to have set for us, for the world, may encounter substantial opposition? Yeah. I mean, the old uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, uh, except I find myself optimistic intellectually as well. You know, uh, it's a dare to struggle, dare to win. That's how I feel about it. And I think we, I think we can, not only can, but must. And that must is more important than the can. And uh, we got no, no choice but to struggle as if we can win. And so that's how I intend to struggle. Well, Malcolm Harris, Palo Alto, A History of California Capitalism in the World. I'll encourage Tech Policy Press listeners to go out and take a look. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest, thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.